Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Morecast, presented to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. First, I'd like to tell you about Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. I like wine. I usually, when I do my late podcast and the Gen X movie show and the Gen X uh, um, uh, music show, I will have my wines. Today, you know, it's a little early for me to be drinking. However, uh, I, w- I do love me some good Cabernet red wine. Oh, there's nothing like it. And Blanchard has the best in Denver. Um, they're right there in the middle of the dairy block, so you can socially distance at a limited basis. You don't have to be around anyone, and you can just go out with a small group of friends and really enjoy yourself. They also have virtual wine tastings. Go to them at bfwdenver.com to book your virtual wine tasting, or you can just uh, go down and at least get a reservation, or just go through the dairy block, and if you're doing a nice uh, walk through downtown Denver. They got Pinot, they got Cabernet, they got Rieslings, they got a partnership with a Western Slope Winery. Uh, I su- highly suggest you take that, them up on that. They are once again located between 18th and 19th of Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. They are on Facebook and Instagram under Bryanshire Family Wines. When you go in, tell them Jeff Morton from CSG Podcast sent you there. I'd also like to tell you about my friend Andy Feinstein and Exo Event Center. Please support our friends at Exo Event Center located in Denver's vibrant Rhino Arts District. Exo Event Center can host safe socially distanced events for up for 25 to 175 persons outdoors and up to 100 persons indoors. If you are interested in hosting an event for a corporate gathering, fundraiser, client appreciation, birthday, anniversary party, or just a, basically a morale boosting happy hour, which face it, we all need right now, Exo would love the opportunity to be part of it. Please visit extoevents.com for more information and book your private event today. Okay, for making his his debut on the Morecast, but not on CSG, uh, is a man who has actually, I don't think he's been on CSG since 2015, which is a very big oversight on my part. Uh, he, he, had, he writes for the Action Network. He is on Twitter at HB Basketball, and he's a co-host of Lockdown Nuggets podcast. Uh, and he's also the fan and uh, Nuggets uh, insider for uh, the fan. I would like to present to you, Mr. Matt Moore. Hello, Matt. What's up, King of Thornton? How's it going? <laughs> I am fantastic. You know, uh, I, 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 I'm going to take a different angle on this. I kind of I told Matt before the podcast, but we're going to we're going to take a different angle on this. And that angle is Matt and I have been covering this team longer than anyone who currently does it, other than Chris Dempsey, who is you know part of Altitude right now. And we saw some stuff going all the way back to 
back in the day. And what occurred to me after watching this Clippers, this tri triumphant Clippers uh, series victory was how diametrically opposed vibe it is to what we, what it was seven years ago um, when the Nuggets began an adventure of, uh, well, I, I mean, even I was covering Nuggets when George was here too, but I specifically wanted to talk about the Conley era. Let's start with Brian Shaw. Matt, if you could bottle up and think about how different it is then, now from then, just on a surface level, would you describe it as um, more harmonious, I guess would be the best way I could put that, more harmonious? Man, I think the, the better way to do it, the better way to talk about it is uh, support breeds professionalism. Yeah rather than professionalism breeding support. So I look back on the Shaw era and I think Brian fell into the same trap a lot of former players do, yeah. which is when you've won at a high level, you have standards mm -hmm. and you've been around teams that have held those standards and you expect your players to live up to those standards. And the problem was, that team wasn't prepared for that. Like he had a bad roster for the type of coach that Brian Shaw is. Yeah. Um, like I'm, I'm known as a very pro Mike Malone guy and I am, I'm a very pro Michael Malone dude in terms of like me being like, he's a really good coach. You guys should appreciate him. No, you should not fire him. Yes. He should continue to be the coach. Yeah. But I also think that if, if Malone tomorrow decided, I just really miss being around my daughters, I'm just going to go do that for a while. I, I think if Brian Shaw were to take over this team, which he would never do, but if he were to take over this team, he'd be in a much better shape because these guys know what professionalism is because they've learned it because they came up under a coach that provided them with emotional support as much of a lunatic hothead as he can be sometimes provided them with emotional support on a one-to-one -one level. Yeah. And in doing so gain their trust. So he was able to instill those values of professionalism versus Brian took over and took over a team that was coming off of George mm -hmm. and George was basically like, I don't care what you do. Just do what I tell you on the court. That's all I really care about. Like at that point, George was not into like, we're going to breed a culture. Yeah. Like George was into like, I want to win games. Yeah. And Malone took over the nuggets at that point in his life where like he wanted to build a culture. Like that's what he wanted to do. He has all these basketball ideas and philosophies that extend beyond the locker room. And I think that Brian really struggled with the fact that his players wouldn't respond to any of the things that he tried to impart. He did not know how to reach them. And yep. as much as that's on him, I also think so much of that's about where the roster was between the young guys and their influences and the veterans, mm -hmm. because the veterans lost all of the guys that were the professionals to hold them in check yeah. at the same time. And so you just had this complete collapse, yeah. which is what happened in that era. I think, yeah. you know, again, I just feel like if you, if you talk to the players and you're like, you saw that the other day with like Jokic where like, he's like, he picks up and hugs Malone after, and he says, mm -hmm. I'm going to give you a birthday present. I'm either going to send you home to your family or I'm going to get you into the Western conference finals. Mm -hmm. Like just the fact that they have a relationship, yeah. even though it may be strained at times, I think that that's really important. And then Jamal and him, I think actually really do vibe well. I think that yeah. they actually get along pretty well. I think him and Gary Harris have 
a really close connection because of the fact that he trusted Gary in a way Brian did not. Yeah. Um, and so like all of these things, I, feel, I think it was the wrong time, wrong team for Brian Shaw. But ultimately I think that much of the product is that Malone got to in tandem with, with Conley mm-hmm. build the team that best reflected his values. Yeah. Or at least approximately mm-hmm. versus Brian was trying to mold an already established, not completely. They were young dudes and they were just as much of a problem, but a roster that already had a culture and was trying to change it halfway through. Yeah. You know, I, I think when I look back on that time, there was some missteps done in the, uh, in the process transitioning between George and when Brian Shaw got here. Uh, that we were all privy to. One of them is that, quite frankly, uh, the uh, uh, selection of assistants Brian Shaw had were great, and assistants are huge in this league, huge. Um, and the process, I think, reflected, and I would to where like we slowly graduated to, it reflected a learning experience by a lot of people involved, including Josh Kroenke. Uh, including Tim Connolly, who was running by himself, you know, an organization for the first time. They, but the, I guess the good thing about it is they were allowed to make mistakes. They were allowed to go through this process. Yes, it was a weird time in general, uh, those a year and a half that Brian Shaw was here, but they were allowed to progress through that. Um, like you and I have talked about this, we would not have signed J.J. Hickson to a contract. <laughs> we would not have signed Nate Robinson to a contract. However, well, you know, that's where they were at the time. Well, I also think like, I mean, I've, t- I've talked to Tim Conlon about this before and he's pretty transparent about these things in terms of um, he'll tell you like, we made mistakes. Yeah. We'll continue to make mistakes. Like all we can really do is learn from them. And I think that that was like a large part of it was um, I, I, I had concerns the first time cause I didn't know Tim at all. And he, you know, I had my first conversation with him and he told me that he, hi- he signed Nate Robinson as like a locker room dude. Uh, and JJ Hickson is like a character guy. And I was like, <laughs> really? <Is> that... <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, Cause like the reputations around the league weren't sterling. Like Nate's, Nate's beloved by teammates. Like Nate's been loved by every teammate he's, he's had in terms yeah. of like great guy, a lot to be around over a long period of time because he's a big mm-hmm. personality, but in general, like that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's like a large part of it. Like they just, they didn't, you saw later, and they talked about this, that, that they, they've been very transparent about this, that they, after that initial two years, like they really shifted to, they prioritized two things, smart players that wanted to work. Like that was like a big deal to them yep. was they really prioritized guys that wanted to be in the gym because and it fits their personality a lot more too, right? Yeah. Like, you know, like Brian was part of like the Lakers and like part of sh- uh, like the, the very big personality Lakers of, of Shaq and Kobe. Um, and instead, like you needed real blue collar dudes. And this isn't necessarily reflective of Brian, but I'm just saying like, mm-hmm. what you needed was you needed, you needed gym rats all the way around. Yep. And if you look at the team that, that they have now, uh, except for Nicola, like <laughs> Jamal's a gym rat. Yep. Gary Harris is a gym rat. Will yep. Barton loves, loves being on the court. Uh, yep. Paul, uh, like Mason Plumley. Paul Millsap, like built like an entire court and a facility for him to train in in the off season. Like yep. that's where he spends his money. Yeah. Um. Up and down, Tory Craig, like 100% blue collar. Um. You know all of these dudes. So like, they they really started to prioritize smart players that 
had high character attributes in part because they saw how bad it was when they just hired like veteran dudes that know the league and know how to play. Yeah. Uh, and that was the thing is just like it, none of it connected. Like it just was a total miss. This is true. Because I think like the players that, that Brian Shaw trusted weren't the best players on the team. And the best players on the team, honestly, at that point weren't players that you could trust, you yeah. know, and, and that was for a lot of reasons. And there's, you know, a tie, I think was a, a large part of that. And I don't, mm. I don't blame him. Like, I don't have, like, I have, I don't blame Ty Lawson uh, because I think like Ty continuously struggled with substance abuse, whether he admitted it or not in terms of alcoholism. And just yeah. like, he got popped for so many DUIs. Like, I don't know how else to, to do that. And even after that happened, he was like, no, I don't have a substance abuse problem. Yeah. And like, I'm sorry, he's no longer in the NBA anymore. He left the league at like 26, 27 he when he was an all-star caliber guard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not trying to, like, again, I, I just think that he didn't get the support that he needed. And I think Ty was a fantastic NBA player. Yeah. And he was always a good dude. And he wasn't a problem in the locker room. Um, but I think all of these things kind of combined. Like, you just look at the personalities that were involved. You had stubborn dudes that were very much into their careers. Yeah. And what they have now is like they have a group that really wants to win together. Mm-hmm. And I think the that one of the things they also learned was like they took they benefited from being able in this current era to being able to do things like, hey, we're gonna take care of this guy and make sure that he's financially stable so that we do not have the concerns of he's in a contract year and he's worried about his deal. Like you just haven't had that. Will's been on a stable deal. Gary got the extension. Jamal got the max. Nicola was never a question. Um, And so, and like going forward, they'll continue to probably do that as like fine. You know, I think even Paul Millsap, like I think that they just like, they brought Paul Millsap back because it was like, okay, we're going to go ahead and take the, the the option on him because we're better with him than without him, you know, and it proves that we're willing to pay if if you contribute to the team. Um, And they really like, they had the biggest thing is just like after the Shire, like they had a, they had to rehab the image of the team from a owner, management, coaching, locker room standpoint. Yes. And it took them until 2018-19. Like, think of it, like mm. George left the summer of 2013. It took them six years, yep. I think, to really rehab that image completely. Yep. Um, and even then they can't get free agents, but that's a separate deal. Like yes. no one, no one said no to the nuggets wanting to get a call this summer yeah. because they were like, I don't trust your culture. I don't trust your ownership. I don't trust your management. Yeah. I don't trust your coaching. Like no one, it was just like, I don't want to live in Denver. Yeah. And so like, you know, now like this is what'll be interesting. Like this is a really messed up summer uh, and I have no idea what to expect from the Cronkies uh, given the economic environment. Yeah. But yeah. like, that's, what's kind of interesting is like they, you know, the team had really, this is kind of modern talk, but the team had really pivoted to, we can't get free agents because if we were ever going to get them, it was going to be last summer. We're going to have to do this internally, but now they made the Western conference finals. So you're going to see a lot of free agents be like, ah, but I, I can play for Denver. They were, they were one step away from the finals. Like that changes it. Yep. Like this win over the Clippers fundamentally changes things, but it's kind of to sum up. I just think that that, that to me um, was a lot of, of, where we were to where we are you know i i there's one pivot pivot point for me mm. uh and i did a podcast on this a couple of months ago but uh, it was called how all in for nurkic became all in for Jokic," and that really was the axis point with which everything began to turn 
And I don't think people remember in Yusuf Nurkic's rookie season how much everyone in the organization was like, oh, we got this guy. And then he got hurt at the end of the season. And I remember there was a meeting midway through, uh, actually, it was in March of uh, 2015, right before Brian Shaw was fired. And uh, all of us are at Fire on the Mountain with uh, Tim Connolly. And he, and he mentions to me and Nate, have you seen Nikola Jokic? Because I, I, I had done no research on him. He, Jokic wasn't in town yet. And I've told the story before. And I said, like, I have no idea. So Nate whips out his phone and he puts, pulls out this video of pink uniformed Megalex uh, uh, playing for uh, Grainy. The film happened to be Grainy and it was 2015. I couldn't believe it. And of, of Jokic playing, I'm like, oh, wow. Wow, that's, that's amazing. The process that from Nurkic to Jokic is to me the the probably the point where the organization I I mean we could talk about culture and we talk about Michael Malone coming in that was all part of that process too but identifying uh, Nikola Jokic and all of that process to me because even when Jokic came in they didn't understand at the time how good he was going to be that itself was a process but that transition from Nurkic to to Jokic I think was absolutely pivotal. I mean yeah it was I think. There's a lot going on there in terms of in Yusuf's rookie year, he got selected for the Rising Stars game, yep. and he was really upset because he wanted to go home. He wanted to go like home. he was just really upset, and there was like a conversation that was ongoing that could not be like you couldn't hide. Like usually they're very good about hiding conflicts, and like this was spilling out into like the hallways the and stuff like that. Yes. And like and like, this stuff happens. Like yeah. I'm not trying to like spill any sort of like no. like this isn't gossipy stuff. It's just like, yeah. it was very clear that he was upset. And that was followed up by the fact that I, the, there was always a sense that he could have come back from that leg injury sooner. And he didn't. And that stuff like is very differently regarded now. Now it's all like, Oh, the player says he's hurt. You absolutely have to let him go. And all. Yeah. I think that there is a point, this is where what's kind of interesting about the modern context the internet and Twitter in particular are always like, you have to trust the player. Like the players are always, the players always know better. And that, yeah. I'm like, okay, I'm willing to say that the players know better than I do. That's obvious. Yeah. But when I know that his teammates are not happy about it either, how do I feel about that? Because like, that's a big part of this is that there are times when there are times when a player is hurt and guys are like, he can't go. Like, he's just not right. He wants to play and he can't. Yeah. Like, I know that guy wants to play and he just can't. Yeah. And then there are times when the players are like, could really help use you out here, big guy. No, it hurts a little bit. We really use you. Mm-hmm. And that was what was interesting about the whole thing. And this was actually reflective of that season and, and the, the switch halfway through. Part of what happened that year, I will maintain, was that the front office was like, I need to see these guys play basketball because I have to know whether to pay them, yep. trade them, or waive them. Like that was a big part of that season was like, we have all these young dudes. We can't keep all of them. I have to have some sense of them. And if you don't play them, I'm not going to know. Yeah. And so I think that was a large part of the whole like Nurkic starting thing was like, we got to know if you like, I think they always loved Jokic and knew what he was capable of. Like, that's, what's crazy. It's like, Jokic was off the bench. And it's like, I think that they knew 
they were going to keep Jokic long-term and they needed to see like, okay, first, can these two play together? No. Yeah. Okay. Let's start Nurkic to see what happens. Like if we get Jokic off the floor, does he play better? Mm-hmm. And then it was like, no, like Jokic is just better and needs to play more and needs to start. Yep. Um, but the problem was like at that point, once you did that, then the consequence of that was that Nurkic bailed. Like he yes. just bailed because very specifically there wasn't a Dame on Denver. Yeah. Like it makes sense that he and Dame are great and everything is awesome there. Cause like Dame's in his ear, like Dame's not going to let you check out like Dame's not going to let you. And it's happened before it happened early in Portland's in his tenure with Portland that he re- like that he would get benched and just like evaporate from the lineup for a few weeks. Yeah. But Dame kept on him. And I think really was able to change as Nurkic matured, mm-hmm. but there was nobody on Denver that wasn't, that was ready for that. Not that, that time. Jameer no. Nelson was not going to be that guy. No. No, Gallo wasn't going to do that. Oh, certainly. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, there was also some issues there. But I think uh, when I look back on that, I think it, it was never going to – as soon as they decided on Jokic, it was just never going to work with Nurkic. He was a starting caliber center. That's, that's right. just the, 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 the long and short of it. You can't keep two starting caliber centers on your roster and have one come off the bench. It was not going to work. Uh, and they, and I think by there was a certain time they knew it. Nurkic made things rough. He made things right. really rough. Um, has has been covered in many different places. We don't have to go over it again. But it, he made things rough. So they leave, and that really. But even after they decided on Jokic starting, uh, which was December fifteenth, two thousand Once they decided on that. That was it. That was it for him. That, 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 that was the direction of the franchise. Also with that is Michael Malone coming in. And Malone coming in and changing the culture uh, was really big because the, I, I would describe I, – I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say the culture was toxic, but it was certainly really depressing <laughs> in that locker room, uh, the last of the Shaw era and into the last of the Melvin Hunt era. Um, and poor Melvin uh, did the best he could as an interim head coach. Yeah. But it was, it was just a toxic stew that needed to be filtered out. And I think Michael Malone was absolutely 100% the right coach to come in and, and kind of reclaim the Denver Nuggets. Yeah. And, you know, I think even that first year, like Malone was very obvious, was was transparent about this. Like it was going to be a multi-year process. Yeah. Um, and while, again, I think that Malone deserves the majority of the credit, Mike Miller was such a big part of it too. Yeah. Um, and they struggled, honestly, I think when he left because they didn't have that veteran guy yeah. that was such a positive influence because Richard Jefferson was just like – that I'm not look I'm not look Richard Jefferson has a really good reputation in this league like mm-hmm. he has a really great reputation in this league and everyone really likes our Jeff yeah. um and he was he's a champion and so my thing is less of like he was bad and more of just like I don't I just don't think he ever bought into the team yeah. I think that he got here and was like willing to give it a shot and be like the veteran dude and he saw how this team operates and he was coming from LeBron and it's just like a different it's yeah. just different yeah. and Miller was just so positive from the beginning like you can put Mike anywhere and he's going to be a positive dude mm-hmm. no matter what. And I think Jefferson was like, I'm not, I'm not into um, what this, I, I think, I don't, I think a lot of his concerns were the same kind of problems that like Will Barton brought up after the Clippers game of like, this team's soft and they don't get it and they just don't have it mentally together. Yeah. And, and that's okay. But 
you have to have a little bit more allowance for how young this team still is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think, I, I think a lot of it was, I don't think anybody believed that they could do what they, what they did this season yeah. until they did it. Like, true. I think the only people that really believe that they could they could make the Western Conference Finals were Jamal, Nicola. Because like I don't think Nicola thinks in those terms. Like I don't no. think if, I don't think you say like, can you make the Western Conference Finals? He's, he would be like, well, who do we play? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Very true. And I think you know Gary. I think um, Tori. I think Mason. I don't think Paul thinks of it that way, mm-hmm. but my point here is more of just like, and the coaching staff, I think, I think more of just like, it's a matter of, they didn't know what they could accomplish. And then they got there and they were, they were always up for the test. Yeah. And then they got tested and they passed it at least to this point. Um, but like, I just look back at the, at the last years of sh- that last year of Shaw and it was, it was bad. just so bad. Like he so just, bad. he had no, like the rap, the pregame rap and oh. the phone box and God. just like, and like, look, if you talk to the players, they were all very adamant. The veterans were that a lot of the problem was the young guys. Yeah. Um, that, that was a big part of it, but that also reflects back on yeah. the top yeah. players. Like, again, I just get back to when Ty Lawson's the best player on your roster and Ty was in the position that he was, you weren't going to get what you needed. And like, that's not on tie. Like that's part of, that's just the organization's fault mm-hmm. was that they needed a better player who was a better leader. They needed a player. They needed their leader to be a better player than Ty. Yep. And that was, they couldn't do it, but that was like the problem yeah. with where they got to by the end of it. And I think, you know, their second best player at that point, you know, with Gallo out was what Kent Freed, you yes, know, like would have been Freed. Yep. And that's, bad like that's and Shaw you know, constantly and, complained about Fareed publicly I mean yeah that, that's that's yeah. where that relationship was that's yeah well and that's like such a that's such a big gap between Brian and, and Malone too is for Brian it was all about accountability like I'm gonna hold you accountable at all points yeah and I am who I am and I'm gonna hold you accountable in the in the locker room and I'm gonna hold you in account- accountable in the media and I'm just gonna hold you accountable because like that culture does work like there are, there are environments where that culture does work. But what Malone did was Malone came in and we noticed it very early on. Like I can, I was telling this to Adam the other day. Like, I think literally I can remember five times in Michael Malone's entire career where he's called out a player in the media post game, yeah. yeah. like five times, yeah. two of them, I think were Gallo. Like yeah. it, it's just like, this is just where they were. Like yeah. he, he very pointedly, took such a different approach in that and when the players were like that they it's it is really crazy brian shaw is a former player an nba champion yeah. a longtime assistant coach and that that team never felt like he had their back yeah. and from the very start those players even if they disagree with how like malone screaming and yelling and being a hothead even if they disagree with the game plan they know that malone's got their back and he's not going to sell them out to the media yeah like he's just not when i've asked him about players that are struggling his response is always the same i've got to do better as a coach to get him better opportunities yeah like that and that that goes a long way with earning trust in this league when they're 
earning capacity is built on this kind of stuff. Well, you know, and I'm I, the only time I ever think Malone made a mistake in the media was after they lost to the Kings again. <laughs> just kind of came unglued and I'll never forget that. And we go back in the locker room and the player, uh, we, I think you're talking to Gallo. I, I forget what Malone says, but it was whatever. And it was like, and, and you knew that the only reason Malone was that upset is because they lost to the Kings. The Kings. Yeah. Specifically the Kings again, everyone yeah. knew it. And uh, we went to talking to Gallo and, and Gallo was usually to get you pull behind the curtain for people. Gallo was like a robot. Okay. In these in the in the locker room, if you were able to get him in the locker room, uh, he was a robot. He would just his soul would leave his body, and he would go into clichésville, and it was like that every time. That's the first time I ever seen him react like that. He, he gave us the weirdest look. He said, "I don't think that at all." And that was the only time, only time I can ever remember Malone maybe not handling it very well. Actually, and you know, and after that, honestly it gets to the point where it doesn't matter anymore. And what you're trying to build is the big overall part of it. And that's one of the reasons I brought this whole thing up from Shaw to now. It's like, I don't think, I don't know. And you brought it up at the beginning of the podcast. I don't know if the nuggets get to where they are now. If certain things remain the same. And I think the changes needed to happen to in order, like with any ecology of a team, to get them where they are now. And it is such a night and day to me. I was just thinking about it after they won. It's a night and day culture to me, completely night and day. And a lot of that had, it's, it's, it's a top-down organizational thing, building this culture and maintaining it and uh, not making rash decisions that through the entire process. Yeah. I mean, like that's been the, their big, this is why it has to be like so rewarding for Tim Conley. He's not going to take a victory lap because that's not what the man does. But like, hit, the biggest criticism I have of Tim's tenure is that he waits too long on things. Yeah. He waited too long to trade Ty. He waited too long to trade Kenneth. He waited too long to try and make an upgrade. Uh, he waited too long. Like there was just all these things where it's like he just waited. He he waited too long. And I was prepared to say to be like, this is the big test for for him now going into the summers, I was like, you're going to need one more guy. It's clear that you need one more guy. You're going to have to make one more guy appear. And that means you're going to have to like make a move. It's going to be painful. You can't wait this one out until the deal is just right. Like you're going to have to pay for this one to get the guy that's going to get you over the top. Yeah. And then they made the Western conference finals. And now I'm like, I don't know if you need one more guy. Like <laughs> maybe you got enough. Like we'll see how this Lakers series goes. And if you, you know, even if the Lakers, even if the Lakers were to dominate them, that gives you an idea of like, all right, we know specifically what we're going to need. Like we're going to need like the most likely outcome from the series is going to be like, we're going to need another backup center. Like yeah. we're going to need one because we're going to have to have somebody to deal with Anthony Davis, uh, Dwight Howard and JaVale. Um, like we need a power forward. Who's like six ten. Like yeah. we need a big dude to hand to, and we like, we need an Anthony Davis counter. Um, and that gets dangerous because that leaves you open to other vulnerabilities and other rounds. And certainly like going down three, one twice, it's easy to be like, this was kind of a fluke run. Yeah. But I still think, like, no matter what, and this is what's been remarkable, is to finally see this thing. Like, people are now treating the, the, the like, when they do the, after the series, uh, if the Nuggets should lose, when they do, they talk about next season, people are going to say, there's no longer going to be like, you have to worry about going through the Lakers and the Clippers and the Rockets. They're going to be like, you got to worry about going through the Lakers and the Nuggets and maybe the Clippers. Yeah. Like, there's going to be a, you got to figure out how to beat the Nuggets because... Yeah. That team is tough. Yeah. Um, 
And yeah, like, I think a, a lot of it is uh, the decisions and, and like they evolve naturally. Like I think um, there's a bunch of coaches that don't get enough credit for what they've brought to the team as they've come through. Yeah. Um, like just along the way, you talk about the assistants under Brian yeah. Malone's had so many really good assistants. Like it's yeah. very likely Wes Unseld's going to be gone. Oh, because he's yeah. probably he's probably going to get one of the open coaching jobs. Yes, and that's going to be a huge loss for huge. the coaching staff because West huge. has been great. For as bad as the Nuggets' defense has been statistically, when they have committed the scheme and executed it, like they held the the Clippers in the last three game of the series to a ninety six offensive rating. Like holy crap, night and day, right? Um, <laughs> and so Utah much of that. <laughs> and and whenever anybody talks about like Jokic can't defend, mm-hmm. I go back to the conversation I had with West, where West was like. I asked Wes, what are you going to do when they force a switch on Jokic? He's like, why would we switch with Jokic? And I was like, well, they're going to make you. He's like, we will not let them. <laughs> like, we'll send help, and then we'll send backline help. And, yeah, it's hard, but we're not going to give you the mismatch you want. And you've seen that. Like, you've seen that consistently. The Jazz did it about as well as anybody because of what they brought to the table. But even then, by the end of the series, they had it a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um I also think that from an, both small picture and big picture, both tactically and larger, yeah. Malone doesn't make the same mistakes year over year. Yeah. Like this has been a big part of it is you and I very early on singled out, I forget which season, whether it was his first or his second, where he left the bench in like 18 minutes. Oh, of yes. The, game. the Oklahoma City game. And <laughs> the players were just livid livid yes because it's just not something you do yeah like you unless it's like a blowout and you're just playing the young dudes yes it's not done um because it's exhaustive for those players they're not ready for the next game it's humiliating for the starters it's a tactical error like they had the lead and they blew it because like but he hasn't done that since like there hasn't been a game he'll leave a lineup in for like a minute too long and then we're all like, why did you leave that, that lineup in there for him? But it's such a, it, like, I'm like, he left it in for 18 minutes two years ago. So I'm pretty happy that he's made that switch. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a large part. He, he dug in so much in 2018 that he got to the point where the team was cracking in January. And then he backed off yep. and realized, like, I just got to let these guys have fun. And I, gotta, I have to calm down and ease off the throttle. And they just skyrocketed. And so he brought into 2018-19 the, the attitude of like, we're just going to have fun. And like, this yep. is exciting and it's going to be good. And they had this best season ever. And then the expectations rose and he thought that he could go back to, all right, now we're serious competitors. And that's why they had tension all year long. Like that's why they were an unhappy team most of the year. And that's, I don't necessarily blame Malone on that because I think that the players screwed around way too much. Yeah. But uh, it's funny how, how like he's still learning he's still learning how to manage those but he does get better at his mistakes as time goes on i will i will compliment him in the sense that i uh i think he has gotten he has gotten he has improved on everything um and he is even the big bugaboo for many people that i've talked to was his timeouts and he has improved on that too i have i have a, a newfound after this last playoff series two playoff series i have a new friend appreciation for michael malone i really do uh anyone who's been listening to csg knows that I, I i have a tendency to be critical but i believe that he has progressed i believe i see the growth in him you know he's the, the players aren't the only ones growing it's him too yeah i think a lot of it too is you have to let go of the ideas of things like i tend to be more critical of players and so like i had to let go of ideas about Jokic. 
like I had to let go of ideas. Like, and sometimes you have things that come back up. So like, here's an example. All right. So like if Malone goes on a rage timeout, you're like, he's doing it again. He's doing the rage timeout again without realizing like overall he does that much less. Yep. Um, I was like, I was like, Jokic can never be a good defender. He's never going to be a positive. He's always going to be a negative. I don't care what the numbers say. He is targetable. He's always going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. And then I, I came around on that and was like, no, like you can build a good defense with Nikola Jokic and there's things that he does very well. And then the Utah series happened. And I was like, see, you can't build a defense with Nikola <laughs> Jokic. Look how horrible it is. And by the end of the Clippers series, I'm back to like, no, as long as he tries at all. And the scheme is good and it's not a bad matchup. You can have a pretty good defense with Nikola Jokic. So it's like, you have to like, you have to remember that even though people have tendencies, they're fighting to hold off those as well. And like, we have to do that as well. Right. Like I have, like I have tendencies. I have a tendency to be so sarcastic. It's corrosive. And like with my kids, like that's, you can't be doing that. Like that's really bad for them. So I have to stop myself from saying things and be like, no. And calm down and take the bigger picture. You're not sarcastic, man. Never not me. Um, <laughs> I, let's like uh, to, to bring in this podcast home. I want to spend some time about the Nuggets upcoming series against the Lakers. This is the way I see it. And I'll let you tee off. Uh, the Nuggets had some issues with the Lakers. It's let's, uh, well, let's be completely honest here. Uh, the rotation of JaVale McGee, Dwight Howard, and Anthony Davis primarily is gave Nikola Jokic specifically issues. That's something we all saw. Um, it is something that uh, that was, for me, frustrating to watch because I could see Nikola Jokic frustrated by it. Uh, it's something that was very obvious to me watching all of the, the Lakers games, sans maybe the seeding game, which was really weird. Um, I think that that part, that part I fully cognizant of and I'm thinking well they that's going to be bad and then I think every single Lakers game was close every single game was close every single game was competitive so the Nuggets were doing something in those games that was also the Lakers couldn't uh, uh, counter either that is why I'm kind of like I, I struggling with how to get a feel of the series because seriously each game was like really close and very competitive and I'm kind of wondering except for the one where LeBron was out um, it, I'm, I'm kind of wondering how you, if you see the series kind of the same way, it's like, it's hard to read because these games are, were just so close and competitive and, but yet there's still some faults that were very obvious that the Nuggets had. So I work for Action Network and we cover betting, right? And yeah. so a lot of my analysis is based off of what the number is. And the number in the Clipper series was seven and a half to eight and a half. Yeah. And I was just like, yeah, I'll take the Nuggets. Yeah, I'll take the Nuggets. Yeah, I'll take, like I, I, I bet him on the series line. I bet him to win more than wow. two games or bet more than one game, which was plus money, which is absurd. Yeah. Um, the, the number for the game one of the Lakers series is six. They're a six point underdog, which reflects a number of things and increased value in the nuggets. Like they basically just proven to the bookmakers, like, no, they deserve to be taken seriously. Yeah. Um, the problem is that's like the, ex- it's two possessions, right? That means that you win by two possessions, which means even if it's close, it's a five point game. You miss a three, the Denver, the Nuggets have to foul. They hit one of, they hit two free throws and it's done. Yeah. Like that's the window that you're in. Um, and so if it gets up to seven and a half to eight, which is possible, it might, I'm hoping then I'm going to take Denver mm-hmm. because I do think that they can compete in this series. It's just a matter of like winning. Yeah. 
And there's a number of things to take away the like of ways to approach it. Um, they have been close in all of the games. Uh, they were, they had their shots in the first contest that they lost. I throw out the second one because LeBron didn't play. You just, yeah. you can't take that game seriously. Yeah. If LeBron James doesn't play, um, he's so important to them. Uh, the third game was the one that I key in on the most. Yeah. And if you go back and you notice that one, the overtime contest, if you go back and we really dig in on that game and I've done it twice now, so much of it is that Anthony Davis hit jump shots and there's gotta be a level to which if you're a Denver fan, you're just like, if he does it, we're just going to have to live with it. Um, I think their defense is better geared to contest the lob than it ever was in the regular season. Mm -hmm. Having had to face Rudy, in the first round taught them a lot about how to contain the lob. Yeah. And that's, that's really helpful. But one of the problems is that threat was entirely out of pick and roll sequence with Mitchell and Gobert. Yep. The Lakers like to just throw it. So they use it on cuts um, or just catching you napping because they have Rondo and LeBron who can throw a pinpoint perfectly arcing pass yep. to Dwight Howard or Anthony Davis if you fall asleep for a second, but on the other end, the other thing is like transition was a huge part of it. Like the Lakers got a, a, uh, of LeBron's 14 assists in that contest. Five of them came in transition. Wow. Both of those things are things that you can look at and say, if Denver plays with more attention to detail, they can cut down on those. Um, The Lakers half court offense is not great. It is not excellent. It is the fifth best in the playoffs this postseason. And that's after facing the woefully, hilariously bad Portland Trailblazers (laughs) and the we are gambling on small ball. Oh, no, that didn't work. Let's just quit Rockets. (laughs) Like so much of it of and like their half court offense until the last two games of that Rocket series was poor. Denver can win this this series if it's a half court game. If it gets into an athletic contest, they're going to lose. Absolutely. Um, But there's also another thing, and this kind of speaks more to like how you view the game, especially from a historical context. Um, There's a better I know that I trust a lot. His name's Ken Barkley, and he uh, he's a radio host on You Better You Bet. And Ken is one of the sharpest, smartest dudes that I know when it comes to betting and with sports analysis in general. Like he can talk to you about any matchup and give you in specific like specific details to find edges. Yeah. And he and I were talking once and he said to me, you know, in every other sport, I fade the narrative. I bet against the narrative in football because it means that dumb casual sports fans are just betting the Packers because Aaron Rodgers is such a winner or mm-hmm. those kind of things. Yeah. He's like, I do the same in baseball. I do it in college football and college basketball. Yeah. The only sport where I bet the narrative is the NBA yeah. because historically the results always kind of reflect that. And if we look at these playoffs, like what do we have, especially in the Western Conference? Mm-hmm. Clippers going to clip. Yep. A historically joke of a franchise loses a 3-1 lead in humiliating fashion. Yep. And in the fo- conference finals, you have the Lakers versus the Nuggets, which in 2009 and in 2012, we both saw the same thing. Good contest, kept it close, won some games, but ultimately – they're the Lakers. Yeah. And I hate that that's like the case because that's a really boring outcome. 
Yeah. And I don't like the fact that just one team is going to win because of the name on the jerseys. Yeah. The problem is historically, that's how this league goes. Yeah. And until I actually see that outcome not occurring, I got to believe that that's going to be how it goes. It is strange. I, uh, and, and thank you for joining me, Matt. I appreciate it. Uh, I, it is strange to me how I feel about this series is not as, look, I was very confident going into 2009. Very confident going into that series in 2009. Uh, I barely remember the 85 series against the Lakers. Uh, barely. But I remember Issel hitting the three-pointer in game five. But outside of that, I mean, the 2009 and then 2012 were the most instructive as far as narrative goes. Because that 2012 team was not that good. And the Nuggets still lost that, that series. And it was, you know, it, 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 it learns out. The, the name on the front of the jersey was the defining factor in that. Um, and I hope, I hope it doesn't end up that way again. Because if just, as a, just a general basketball fan, that'd just be boring. You know, you want something to stir, stir things up. And I hope that the Nuggets are able to do it. I think, like I said, I, I got the, I think they can keep it competitive. I hope they win. My head is telling me something different at this point. Yeah, I think that's really the only way for you to go. I just don't think, like... Uh, Again, I've built up cred because I'm the only national analyst to pick the, the Nuggets in that series versus the Clippers, yes, you, yes, which like, <laughs> which like, it's not necessarily, I'm not saying that to toot my own horn. Um, it's more, it's more, but I'm serious. Like it's more to say, just, you can't say that I'm a Nuggets skeptic because I believe that in a good matchup, they can win. Yeah. But the problem is just like, this is a really bad matchup. It's, yeah. I don't like Anthony. And honestly, it's not even LeBron. It's just Anthony Davis on, on Jokic and Dwight Howard and, and JaVale both. Like everyone's like, well, when they go small, it's like, if they go small, I like Denver. Oh yeah. I like the numbers don't bear that out. They destroyed Denver with their small ball lineup in the regular season. Yeah. But over the course of a series, I like Denver's chances a lot of adapting to that and figuring out counters, mm-hmm. especially with MPJ now part of the rotation. But, but, <laughs> but, the big lineups, I think, are, are such a big problem. Like, it's I just don't know how problem. they're going to keep them from dunking on them all the time. That's the big thing. It's just like, I did, I said, I've said this on a couple of radio spots. The Clippers like to pretend that they're this big, tough team, that they're these big, bad bullies, but they weren't. The Lakers actually are a big, tough team. They're very physical. They're very tough. And they play you. They don't, they don't jaw at you. Yeah. They, like, it's Danny, Gr- like, Kuzma will yap a little bit. Rondo will yap and LeBron will do his usual amount. But in general, like those dudes just go out and they just are physical. Like they just try and out physical you. And, and that's, yeah. And it's, and it's you know, it's one of those things that Matt, where it's like, there's certain things that get worn out uh, in a series and uh, the physical part of it is something I worry about with the nuggets. Um, but at the same time, I'm confident that they have enough counters to make this series something special. I think, I think this is going to be a great series. And at this point, since we weren't expect, they came from three, one down twice. You know, I hate you. Nuggets fans are going to hate me saying this, but man, you gotta just appreciate that they're there now because it was a monumental task that they did coming back from three, one mentally thinking about that twice. And I, 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 you know, yeah. I don't want to say it's gravy, but it is like, it just is like the series is gravy. Like you get a win versus the Lakers. You get one win versus the Lakers and it's like, all right, you didn't get swept. You win two games versus the Lakers. And it's like, you were in that series. You took two from them. Mm-hmm. Like it would be ideal that I'll get, I'll say it this way. Like if they take game one 
then all of a sudden, like, there's going to be a little, like, it's going to send some reverberations. If they win game one, there's going to be, a, like, it's going to send the, and now LeBron has lost game one of, of both of the last series. Like, he usually takes game one as a feel out. So, yeah. like, take that for what it's worth. But I think they I, 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 I thought my initial feeling was Lakers in five. And then I realized, I was like, I need to give the Nuggets more credit than that. They have hung with this team. And they've just earned that right to, to feel that way. And, then, and the Lakers offense comes and goes enough. So I've got Lakers in six right now. Yeah. But the other thing is just like, if they get this to a seven game, Ooh. do not like, don't let these nuggets get in seven. Do not <laughs> let these nuggets get into that's seven where they games. Eat. That's their home. That's, their that's, home. <laughs> that's where they feel good is down three, one and in game seven. So uh, it, it, hopefully it'll be a fun series in either yeah. way. I think it leads into an exciting off season and it's been a, it's been a postseason run. Remember, it's been um, a great postseason run. And I've never not- seen anything like it. And I've watched a lot of basketball since the late 80s. I've, I've never seen anything like this. So I want to ask you, because I forget this. Okay, in 2009, yeah. I, I could look it up, but I just I haven't. I know that the, the Nuggets absolutely detonated Chris Paul's Hornets in round one. Oh, yeah. And then who was the round two opponent? Dallas, Dallas Mavericks. And is that one where they, they destroyed them too? Uh, they, they won that four one. That was, yeah. So like, so here's a big thing. It's just like, here, here's a question. Okay. Mm-hmm. Regardless of what happens, like, let's say that they lose four one to the Lakers. Yep. The 2019 lost four two to that Lakers team. Yeah. Which one, like which postseason run was better? Because like I lean towards the nuggets. Cause I think these teams are all better I think their first round opponent was better than the Hornets. I think the Clippers were better than those Mavericks. And I think that these Lakers are better than those Lakers. Yes. I I will say this one's better. Um, Although I think the team in 2008 and nine was just kind of primed and ready and had a lot of veterans on it, which really helped. This Nuggets team is a lot different. As we, we, you pointed out earlier, Matt, there's a lot of youth on this team. And that's what one of the reasons this made this so remarkable to me. Like this, the, the, the relative youth, they're only their second time in the playoffs and they're got, once again, going to seventh games. Uh, and, but coming back three, one down, this is just, it's, I can't, the only other analogous thing in Nuggets history would be the, the 94 team. It really would be. And that's just youth, but that Nuggets team in 94, were not good. It was a thoroughly mediocre Nuggets team. This is an actually good Nuggets team. So I, don't, I, can't, I'm, I can't draw a comparison adequately because of where this Nuggets team is and the, the, just how young they are, uh, aside, aside from Millsap. I, I just can't really draw a comparison. This is completely unique to me. This is the first time I've had this realization that in their second playoff run, they made the Western Conference Finals. Yeah. That's crazy. It's crazy. It's, you cannot draw a comparison to anything here. It is insane. Oh man, and and we're we're going to be coming up to uh, one of the most unique series in Nuggets history. And I and Matt, I wanted to have you on because you and I have been doing this for a long time. I've been covering Nuggets for eleven years. You've been covering the NBA for eleven years. It's it's been quite uh, quite an adventure. And I I think I don't obviously for many reasons this is the most unusual playoffs I've ever covered. <laughs> yeah, you can say that again. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for joining me, Matt. I appreciate it. You, uh, as always, were a fantastic guest. Thanks, man.